I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 uh, this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We've been working through a section, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, where the Corinthians had asked Paul some questions about meat that had been offered to idols and about whether or not they could eat that meat. And so last week, we took some time to lay out a guiding principle uh, for the Corinthians and then also by extension for us in matters of dispute or questionable practices. The principle last week was that we should love. And the idea is that we should care so much for other brothers and sisters in the Lord that we would be willing to consider them even when we make personal choices about our own Christian freedom. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 23 this morning. We'll learn another principle that will help us uh, as we make choices relating to uh, liberty. And the principle is the principle of sacrifice. If I were to state this in the form of a sentence, I think Paul's main point in this text is that we need to be willing to disregard personal rights in order to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all throughout the text today, I think Paul is, is, is bringing two things before our eyes. Our own personal Christian rights and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's challenging us or encouraging us through his own example to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ above and beyond our own personal rights or freedom. So Paul says we must be willing to sacrifice for the advance of the gospel. In the book entitled The Man in the Mirror, written by Patrick Morley, he describes in an illustration a true story of four fishermen who were fishing in a secluded bay in Alaska. They had a great day of fishing, and the time came for them to leave. When they returned to their seaplane, however, they realized that it had gone uh, ashore because of the tides, okay? And so they had no choice but to wait for the morning. So when the the next morning came, uh, they started the plane up and they started flying out of the bay. That's when they realized that one of the pontoons had been punctured in the seaplane, had filled up with water, and there was no way the plane was gonna make it out of the bay. So the way the the true story goes, the the plane went down into the water. The four men said a quick prayer and they started swimming in the chilly waters trying to get to the shore. A little bit later, two of the men somehow made it to shore and they looked back and they saw the third man, the father, with his 12-year-old son. The father decided that he was not going to allow his son to try to manage this situation on his own. The son couldn't make it to shore. So the father decided that he would rather die with his son, then then, then call his son to die alone. When we hear examples like that, we we think, man, that's a great, great sacrifice that this father made for his son. But in the pages of the New Testament, we also read of the sacrifice of one who died for us. Jesus lived for us, and he died for us. And I want to suggest that as we come to this place in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, that Paul never got over the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his sins. 
And so men and women, Paul responded to Jesus' sacrifice for him by gladly sacrificing his own rights as an apostle so that the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, would be furthered and expanded. And if you're going to understand the text that we're going to look at this, this morning, I'm going to suggest that what you really need to do is you need to learn a four-part statement. One four-part statement will help you answer or see what's going on in our text today. And so Paul will, will share his own example here, and I believe he'll use this as a means of challenging the Corinthians. The first part of the statement is found in verses 1 and 2, where Paul makes this statement. Number one in your notes, I am an apostle. Look down in your Bibles at verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am uh, to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. In verses 1 and 2 here, Paul begins a discussion by asking a series of questions about his own apostolic position. He asks three or four of them, depending on how you're counting. But Paul asks these questions to prove, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is an apostle. The first proof of his apostleship can be seen in, uh, in the third question there. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Remember, when Paul was on the road to Damascus at his conversion, he was struck with a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in trying to prove his apostleship, because it was necessary for apostles to have seen Jesus, to have walked with him or seen him, Paul asked, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He then goes uh, and he proves his apostleship in another way when he says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? To be an apostle, you not only had to see Jesus, you had to be sealed by the fruit of your apostolic ministry. You see, it was, it was evident that Jesus had commissioned Paul the apostle, and one of the ways you could prove it was all of the fruit that God had worked through Paul's ministry throughout his life. And so Paul says, the final proof of my apostleship is you. You are my work in the Lord. He specifically says in verse 2, you are the seal of my apostleship. You see that in your Bible? You are the seal of my apostleship. The word seal here is a word you probably have heard preaching on before. It's a word that would be used of the impression that would be left by a signet ring that confirmed important documents. So Paul is saying Uh, that they, the Corinthian believers, were the visible sign or the valid stamp of his apostleship. They verify his apostleship. He then goes beyond that in verses 3 through 14 for the second part of our statement. I said, if you learn this one four-part statement, you will know what all these verses are about. Paul says, number one, I am an apostle, and to that he adds, and I have apostolic rights. Let's look at the text together. I'm going to read through verses 3 through 14 with you. If you don't have a Bible, you can see it on the screen behind me. Verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay. Now, admittedly, this is a larger piece of text, but I think it's pretty easy to understand. You can see exactly what Paul the Apostle is doing here. The first thing I want to draw your attention to or ask you is, did you notice in your reading all of the questions that Paul asked? I've underlined them here in the text uh, in, before you. Paul asked all of these questions, and the questions that he asked in the text are primarily meant to prove two points. Paul has two rights. He has two rights that he's going to defend with them. First of all, in the beginning part of this text, he talks about the right that he has to take around a a wife with him in ministry. He says, I have the right to lead about a wife in ministry. Paul had the right to get married But in chapter 7, just before this, we learned that Paul gladly sacrificed that right because he didn't want to do anything in his case that would hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, first of all, don't I have the right to take about a wife around in ministry like like some of the brothers of Jesus? So some of Jesus' brothers must have been married. And like Cephas. Okay, so who's Cephas? Peter. Peter took around a wife with him in ministry. Paul says, don't I have that right too? And without telling us exactly in this text, he says, yet I'm not going to use that right as I travel around in apostolic ministry. But the overwhelming majority of the questions and the content of this text have to do not with that right, but with the right that Paul had as an apostle to receive financial support from the Corinthian congregation. Did you pick up on that as we read through that? I mean, we're text people, right? So if you're like paying attention, you're going to see this over and over and over again. So Paul's saying, I have the right to receive money from you Corinthians because of the ministry that I'm engaged in. And so what Paul does in the text, starting in verse 7, is he begins proving that. He first 
appeals to or gives a defense from culture, gives some cultural examples. Look around you. Doesn't it make sense that you should be willing to support people who do work for you? Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? I mean, what soldier would we send into battle and expect for him on his, you know, in all of his free time to raise money for his own support? It'd be a terrible, terrible idea, right? To send, you know, send soldiers. You work from eight to five in battle, but then after that's done, if you could just like pump gas or something, what soldier would you send into battle and not, not expect to care for him? And then he asked, um, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? I mean, what farmer would you not expect to be able to enjoy the fruit of his farming? Or, or who tends a flock, the end of verse 7, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? What shepherd maintains a flock without getting some of the meat? So Paul is going about proving that he has the right to receive money, and he appeals to all these examples from the culture. But that's not enough for Paul. You go into verses 8 through 11, and what Paul does there is he, he makes sure that his argument does not rest on logic alone. So in verses 8 through 11, Paul appeals to Scripture. If you look down in your Bible at verses 8 and 9, I, I want to look at those with you for a second. He says, do I say these things on human authority, only on human authority? Does not the law say the same For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, so these verses, Paul will ground his human cultural argument in the scriptures. And here he refers to a common practice in the Old Testament era and something that the law of Moses in particular addressed. The Old Testament declared that when an ox worked for you, that you must provide for it. Of course, many of you uh, may, have, may have heard how this worked, but the way it typically would work is the ox would pull a threshing sled, or in some cases, he would tread out the grain uh, with his feet to separate the wheat from the chaff. Okay? After the ox's work was done, then you could easily throw You could throw the product up into the air and the chaff would blow away while the wheat would come down. So Paul Paul argues in this from this Old Testament passage, he argues that this Old Testament text was not put here entirely for the profit of livestock, but is put here for our own instruction, verse 10. And if God requires us to take care of cattle. Do you not think that we should be willing to care for Christian ministers of the gospel? Okay, and so Paul, Paul answers on the basis of law, of the law, that since apostles ministered in spiritual ways to the Corinthian congregation, verse 11, it is not too much for them to reap material things from them reap material blessings from them. So Paul's going about proving the fact that he should receive support from the Corinthians in different ways. Culture shows you this. The scriptures show you this. And then you go to verse 13. I think he's arguing from Judaism. 
Look down in your Bible, verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Verse 13, Paul states that ministers of the temple, Jerusalem, were supported and allowed to eat some of the offerings from the people. Okay, so so in other words, what Paul is doing in verse 13 is, is he's saying the way that Jews take care of their priest offers justification for the church to care for their apostles. So I think in verse 13, he's arguing from Judaism, but there is one final authority that he appeals to. Look down in your Bible, verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Here, finally, in verse 14, Paul appeals to the Lord Jesus, who made this statement. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by or through the gospel. I think what he's doing in verse 14 is Paul is aware that Jesus himself said something about this. Now, we don't know exactly where or when Jesus said this. If it's something that comes from the Gospels, you might write down the reference, Luke 10 in verse 7, where Jesus says, the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, So Paul might have that verse in mind in the Gospels, or it may be that he's aware of some other time or setting where Jesus himself proclaimed those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Regardless, Christ's words then for Paul are his climatic conclusion. Okay, This is his clinching argument. Jesus said it. So you got to believe it, right? We should be willing to, to pay for Christian pe- preachers because Jesus says so. Okay, and so as I said, we've got to summarize this passage in a one four-part statement. We've got the first two parts. Paul says, I am an apostle, and I have apostolic rights, especially the right to be supported. That leads Paul to a third statement, the third part of our statement. And I would summarize verses 15 through 18 this way, but then Paul says, but I do not fully exercise my rights. Okay, verses 15 through 18, Paul says, but I do not fully exercise my rights. Look down in your Bible at verse 15. Paul says, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. I love this part of the text. Next, Paul pulls a surprise move. After he goes through the whole painstaking process 
of defending his position as an apostle and declaring his rights as an apostle, he quickly retreats and he denounces his freedom. Remember one of the first times I ever studied this, I thought, what in the world is Paul doing here? I mean, have you ever been in an argument with someone before where they insisted that their way was the only and right way for something? And you know, about halfway or three quarters of the way through the argument, you think, I know they're right, but I just don't want to admit it to them. But then finally, they corner you in this conversation, and finally you just have to say, you know what, okay. You're right, I'm wrong. And then the person replies something like this. Well, that's okay. We really don't need to do it. I just wanted you to know that I was right. Like, well, why in the world did we take three days to work through this issue? To declare your rights or your position if you're not going to use it. So, what is Paul doing here? He says, I have the right to receive money from you, but I'm not going to take it. What's he trying to accomplish? Well, I want to suggest to you that Paul here is not simply defending himself and his rights, but he is actually providing us an example of self-sacrificial behavior. In other words, Paul is going to show them exactly what sacrificing freedom looks like by examining his own life. For Paul the Apostle had all of the rights of a normal Christian. He had Christian liberty, but he also had apostolic liberty of freedom. And he's going to go into this arena for a while to show believers how they should use their own Christian freedom for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in verses 15 through 19, frames the whole thing by claiming that he will not exercise his right for financial support. I mean, in verse 15, he says it. Verse 19, he says it. He also clarifies at the end of verse 15, I'm not writing this so that you'll start paying me. I'm not doing this to generate money from you. That's not my purpose here either. But then in the rest of the text, he begins to explain why he had not accepted money from the Corinthians. And he gives about three reasons here. First, he would not accept money from them in his apostolic ministry because he was under necessity. You see that in your Bible? He was under necessity, which is a strong, very strong way for Paul to say this. This would be used often in the Gospels of the divine compulsion that Jesus himself faced in going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins. Paul says, I too am under necessity. I'm divinely compelled. I will proclaim the gospel as a slave who has no choice but to represent his Lord. I mean, these verses are a bit complex in some ways, but I mean, you you should walk away with this idea. Paul felt that he had no choice. He was going to proclaim the gospel one way or another. If he did it willingly, that's like a good thing. But even if he didn't want to do it and he was unwilling about it, he was still going to proclaim the gospel because he was placed under divine compulsion. God had pressed upon him this necessity. He then also explains that he proclaimed the gospel because he would experience overwhelming sorrow if he did not preach the gospel. 
And again, a very strong picture here. He would experience overwhelming sorrow if he didn't preach the gospel. I think Paul is beside himself at the thought of not fulfilling the ministry that God had given to him. He says, woe to me. It's actually really hard to translate. Woe to me if I don't do this. Paul experienced some sort of woe. Perhaps it's the the, the thought of the divine punishment that he would face. Or his own internal disappointment that if he failed in the task of taking the gospel, it would be sorrowful for him. But then he proclaims as well that uh, he proclaims the gospel freely so that it would be without charge. You see that down in verses 18 and 19. So that the gospel would be without charge. Now, in understanding this part of the passage, you need, to, you need to recognize that he's not saying that it would be like without effect or without like electricity or something, but that Paul would not take money for his apostolic ministry because he wanted to offer the gospel free of financial charge to the Corinthian congregation and to the people in Corinth. And so in this way, there was no entrance fee for Paul's ministry in Corinth. And I think that this is perhaps a way for Paul to allow his ministry to accurately reflect the nature of the gospel itself. Just as there is no no cost, you can't pay anything to get the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's free. It's priceless. Jesus died. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven of our sins. But I can't pay anything for it. If you went up to an apostle, he says, how much do I pay for the gospel? He'd say, no, it's free. If you went over to Paul and you asked him, how much can I pay you today in Corinth for your apostolic ministry? He would say, it's free of charge. Free of charge, just like the gospel. It's free of charge. Other people try to figure out exactly why Paul wouldn't take money from the Corinthian congregation. In other places, he does. In Philippi, he says, thank you over and over again, for four gifts that they had given to him in his apostolic ministry. But in Corinth, he didn't take money. It may be because of some of the the other rhetoricians that would come through the city and would charge the people. Paul didn't want to be associated with those hucksters, religious hucksters. And so he says, you know what? In this city, no charge. See, Paul doesn't want to do anything that will hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're trying to understand his point in the text. And we've worked on down through it. He says, I am an apostle and I have apostolic rights, but I will not fully exercise my rights. And we add to that one last statement, verses 19 through 23, because I value the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A bit of practical advice here. Paul shows his own approach to life and the gospel. And he'll show us in these verses that he gladly sacrificed for the spiritual development of all other people. As Paul went into different cities, he had different missionary strategies that he would use, but all of them involved great personal sacrifice for himself. If you're going to understand verses 19 through 23, you need to see that Paul sacrificed for the advance of four different groups of people or things. First, what he says uh, in verse 19 is that he, or I'm sorry, verse 20, that he sacrificed 
his rights for the Jews. Look at verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Paul first shows how he was willing to sacrifice for the Jewish people. And he makes an important statement in parenthesis in this verse when he says, I am not under the law of Moses. Okay? Paul did not feel obligated or bound to the regulations of Moses' law. And although that was the case, there were certain settings in his apostolic ministry when he would come under the law and live in obedience to it so that he might minister to Jewish people. I'm going to give you two texts to write down and research this week. You could see this in the book of Acts very clearly. Okay? So uh, the first text you can write down is Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Acts 16, 1 through 3, Paul advises Timothy to get circumcised in order that he might be able to minister more effectively to the Jewish people. Okay, Timothy did not have to get circumcised, yet Paul says, go ahead and do it so that it'll open up a door of ministry to the Jewish people so that they will not be unnecessarily offended in your ministry. Then another text is Acts 21, verses 23 through 26. You could write down that reference this week and look it up. Acts 21, 23 through 26, where Paul participates uh, with the Jews in some rites of ceremonial purification. You see, Paul obeyed Jewish ceremonial practices in some cases as long as obedience to those practices did not communicate that he felt that they had saving merit. Okay, so another way, another way of summarizing this is Paul abstained in certain places when he was with Jewish people, not because he felt compelled by the law, but but because he felt compelled by love for the Jewish people, and he wanted to reach them. And so Paul says, you know what, when I'm with Jews, at the Jewish party, okay, at the Jewish party, when I'm with Jews, I live like a Jew, so that I might be able to minister to them. Paul sacrificed not only for the Jews, he then sacrificed for the Gentiles in verse 21. Look, at, look in your Bible, verse 21, to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law. Important parenthesis here again, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So in verse 21, Paul moves to a second group of people and he describes them as those outside the law. It's actually one word, animas, which means uh, those without law. And here, this is in reference to Gentile people who did not have the benefit of the law of Moses in their upbringing and heritage. And so Paul says, when I'm with Gentile people, I behave as a Gentile. And the reason Paul felt that he could do that again is because oftentimes in the scriptures, he would say about New Testament believers in Jesus Christ that they're not under the law, that we're dead to the law. See, the New Testament teaches that New Testament believers are not under the obligations of the law of Moses. Okay, let me 
give you another way of saying that that's a little bit longer. This is a New Testament scholar. I actually heard him read this, this part of the paper. It's a longer quote, but it's so good. You're going to like this. He's describing the fact that we're not under the law of Moses. This is what he said. He said, the law of Moses is annulled, taken away, voided, abolished, extinguished, destroyed, weak, desecrated, obsolete, cast out, wiped out, invalid, repealed, obliterated, eliminated, removed, replaced, nullified, abrogated, unreal, sundered, and ended. And they, the writers of the New Testament, state equally, unequivocally, and correlatively with reference to the believer that he is dead to, not bound by, free from, redeemed from, liberated by death from, removed from, not ruled by, not keeping, not under, and apart from the law of Moses. Yet he wasn't done. He said, with only the slightest amount of hyperbole, it would, it would seem that every conceivable and available Greek term, legal or otherwise, that could be used to speak of the abolition and annulment of the law of Moses was used. Had the word kibosh existed in the first century, I have no doubt that the New Testament, probably Paul or Hebrews, would have used it to put the kibosh on the law of Moses. This New Testament scholar, looking at the New Testament, says it's clear. New Testament believers are not under the law of Moses. Paul was not under Mosaic law. But Paul quickly qualifies his approach by saying in the parenthesis, and look in your Bible in verse 21 there, in the parenthesis, not being outside the law to God, but under the law of Christ. That parenthesis is critical if you're going to understand this passage. It's a key statement. Paul is not saying, not saying, that he could or would use any method that works in evangelism to save souls or an edification to win Gentiles. Although Paul is free from the law of Moses He is not lawless. There's something that still guides him. The something is what he calls the law of Christ. The law of Christ. We don't have a long time to talk about the law of Christ. I'll just summarize what what I think it is. This is a big area of dispute. I believe that the law of Christ, what Paul means here, is I think he's referencing what Jesus said, and what he did. The words and the actions of Jesus are the standard by which Paul would minister to Gentile people. I mean, all throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8, I don't know if you saw this, but Paul repeatedly appeals to the words of Jesus as a final Final proof for whatever he's talking about. And the Lord said. That settles it. Here, what I think he's he's doing, he said, you know what, when I go to the Gentile party, and there are no Jews there, I live as a Gentile. But I'm not lawless. I, I live around them, I function around them as Jesus would as the law of Christ now leads us. I think that's an important parenthesis for us to see in the text because sometimes believers will use this passage 
to engage in sinful, sinful practices so that they might win lost people. So they'll use verse 21. I mean, look at verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, so I might win those outside the law. Okay, so I'm going to kind of go at this lawless because I want to win people. Or they'll use the following verse. Look down at verse 22 in the final phrase. This is one of the most misquoted and misappropriated verses in the whole of 1 Corinthians. Verse 22b, I became all things to all people that I by all means might save some. Sometimes believers use that phrase or that verse to justify sinful practices to reach lost people. You see, there are many people in churches across America and beyond who are more driven by the needs of the lost than they are the glory of God. Now, both are important, but the scriptures, I believe, would teach that ultimately the glory of God must lead us and direct us in the way even that we reach out and appeal to the lost. We cannot use sinful practices to win the lost. So to minister, to minister, to lost people, sometimes believers go to inappropriate movies so that lost people will see we're just real people. They'll justify, this is for evangelism. I know there's like stuff in there, but I just want them to know I'm a real person. Or sometimes believers will sit quietly and remain in the presence of some people at work who are telling inappropriate, crude jokes. And they'll justify it because they'll say, I want to win the lost people. Men and women, if we do that with this text, this text is not about engaging in sinful or even highly questionable practices to reach lost people. This text is about sacrificing legitimate freedoms and rights in order to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember when I worked with teenagers as a youth pastor several years ago now. I love those days. But one of the things you learn when you work with young people is oftentimes their questions will come to you and they'll be a a bit self-centered. Now, this is true of all believers, but I'll just use teenagers for a second here. So some of the most frequently asked questions I got were, can I do this? Can I go here? Can I watch this? Can I wear this? Can I date this? I mean, him or her. Okay, can I, can I date these people? What you realize is in some of those well-meaning, well-intended questions, it's actually a cloak for an inherently self-centered thing. And so... In youth ministry, our task is to get people from asking questions like, what can I do? Where can I go? What do I have the freedom to do? To get them to the place where they begin asking questions like this. What does God want from me? What can I sacrifice? Got all these things here. What can I sacrifice for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Okay, and so that's Paul's understanding here in this passage. We must ask things like, what does God want from me? What right or freedom can I sacrifice so that the gospels advance through me? If you begin asking those sort of questions, then you are beginning to understand Paul's text here. 
And so Paul in the text says that he would sacrifice for the good of the Jews. He would sacrifice for the Gentiles. And then in verse 22, he reminds us of the context. He would also sacrifice for the weak. Oh, great, the weak brother again, right? Verse 22, look in your Bible. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, so I might by all means save some. I think that last phrase is summarizing the three seen before. The Jews like a Jew, to the Gentiles like a Gentile, to the weak brother who feels bound by his conscience not to eat the meat sacrificed to an idol. Paul says, when I'm around the weak brother, I will not eat that meat. Look at the very end of chapter 8, and you can see where he says, I will never eat flesh again if, if it's necessary while the world stands, if it will make my brother offend. And so he would sacrifice for the weak as well. He would respect the conscience of the weaker brother. He's at the party, and there's some weaker believers there. Paul will function like a weaker believer so that he would not cause this brother to sin by eating the meat. And then finally, finally, in verse 23, he says that he would also sacrifice his rights for the gospel's greater impact. Or you could just say the gospel. Look in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them all those different types of people in the blessings, in its blessings, the blessings of the gospel. So Paul is like a chameleon at times. He would change his colors to further the gospel as long as he didn't compromise. And he'd gladly sacrifice for all these different types of people for the sake of the gospel. I didn't tell you this, but I, I tried to kind of hide it throughout the text as we went through. But multiple times throughout the text, especially in the final half of this text, Paul uses the word gospel. In fact, I counted this morning, I counted nine times from verses 12 through verses 23 where Paul says gospel. It's found in verse 12. It's found two times in verse 14. It's found two times in verse 16. It's three times in verse 18. And then he closes with it here. Just in case you miss gospel. I do this all for the sake of the gospel. To me, he does it no, no more clearly than this verse and also back in verse 12, which I didn't say anything about. So go, go up and look in your Bible at verse 12. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than, and here it is, put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. The words put an obstacle in the way of are translated in some other versions by one word, like in the King James is translated with the word hinder. Paul didn't want to do anything that would hinder or would break up the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word that's used here is a word that was often used, it was a military term. It'd be used of soldiers who would go ahead of an advancing army and they'd break up the road or break up a bridge or something so that the army couldn't get across the enemy. And so Paul says, I do all of this and I keep sacrificing. When I'm with the Jew, I'm under the law of Moses. When I'm with Gentiles, I don't even mention the law of Moses, but I act like Jesus does. When I'm with the weak believers, I, I minister to weak believers. I'm bound by their conscience. I do all of this for the sake of the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we look through this passage, the dominant concept, of the passage 
has to do with the gospel. Paul would sacrifice anything in order not to stop the goodness of Jesus Christ. So men and women, we cannot selfishly spend all of our freedom on ourselves. But we must gladly sacrifice for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we had fathers like this, they would be exceptional fathers. Put the advance of the gospel and the relationships around them above their own rights and freedoms. Fathers who would look at their children and would look at their wife and care more about the gospel of Jesus Christ advancing in their life and about their own personal rights or freedoms. And while this is true of fathers, it should be true of all of us as believers in Jesus Christ. Several years ago now, uh, my son Levi was given a gift of $2. Levi is, was at this time four years old. And so I asked him after he got the gift, what do you want to do with your two bucks? And he said, Dad, I'd like to go get some candy. Okay, and so we went to Walmart. And we're going into the, 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 we'd have to go far into the store, right? All the candies out front. They trick your kids and you. It's all right there. As we're going through the checkout, my son picks out uh, more than $2 worth of candy. You know, and I just kind of slid another dollar or two to the person there. And you should have seen his eyes. He's just so excited. Never forget, we went back into the, the parking lot. I put my son Levi into the van, and I buckled him up, you know, properly as any good father would do, right? It's a child safety thing. Put him in there, and I close the door, and I walk around to my seat. I sit down. I buckle myself up. I put the car in reverse, and I look in the rearview mirror, and I see my son Levi. Somehow, in that, like, one minute, he had taken the wrapper off of every piece of candy, and he jammed it all into his mouth. So that, I would never, I'll never forget this picture. I'll always have it in my conscience. You know, there's like just juices flowing down <laughs> his face. Yeah, you know, I, I give you that illustration about my four-year-old son, Levi, and you say, that's so what? Oh, how cute, right? Oh, four-year-old, this is what, the way four-year-olds behave. Now, if I were to tell that story today, and I would change it to talk about a 41-year-old man, 41-year-old man gets gum, or gets $2. What are you going to do? I can't wait to buy some candy. And he goes to the store, and he, he gets all the candy. As soon as he gets it, he puts it all in his mouth and juices it. If I were to tell you that story about a 41-year-old, how would you respond to that? There's something off here. <laughs> There's something off. What's the difference between a 41-year-old and a 4-year-old? We expect the 41-year-old to have matured so that he would know you don't have to immediately consume all of your freedoms or your resources. And perhaps we'd expect him to say, you know what, there are some things more important than candy that you could possibly spend your money on. So Paul says, I am an apostle. I have apostolic rights, but I do not fully exercise my rights because I value the gospel. The Christian should hear this and respond this way. I am a Christian. 
I have Christian freedoms. But I do not fully exercise my freedoms because I value something more. The gospel of Jesus Christ. May we live like this. May God give us such a love for the good news of Jesus Christ that we will gladly, quickly, give up any right of freedom so that the gospel is advanced in the life of others. Let's pray together. As we close in prayer, I would ask you to just briefly consider in your own heart how quickly you are to ask, God, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I have this freedom? Can I go there? Can I do that? Instead of asking, God, what do you want for me? And God, how can I use the resources that you've given to me, including my freedoms in the gospel, and use them in the greatest way to impact people for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Perhaps you've justified sinful practices, or highly questionable practices in reaching the lost. Perhaps this week you could consider what the te- this text of Scripture would say, t- say to that. And perhaps you begin asking the question, what would Jesus do with my lost neighbor? How would he respond to this joke? What would he do in this, this setting so that the gospel could be advanced in their lives as well? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being able to meet this morning. I pray that you would use this text of Scripture to sharpen and refine us. Lord, we are inherently self-centered people. Often, we will absorb all of our own freedoms immediately on ourselves. But Lord, would you change us through the power of the Spirit to love Jesus and his gospel more than ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.